Marina Cars, new play Audrey or Sorrow, opened at the Abbey Theatre on Wednesday evening. You may remember we had two of the cast, in fact, Ashley O'Sullivan and Nick Dunning on the programme a couple of weeks back. The play, they play rather, Audrey and Pearlie, two of the four ghost children who inhabit the stage for most much of the action. There's also a young couple, Maria David, played by Zara, Maria and David, played by Zara Devlin and Patrick Martins, living in the shadow of a previous tragedy and now with a new baby to look after. The play is directed by Katrina McLaughlin. Helen Meany has been to see it for us and she's with me in studio th- this evening. The word sorrow is, is important for sure in this play. When you call a play Audrey or sorrow, you know we're in, we're in a kind of a dark area uh, in, in terms of theme. But it opens, I have to say, when I, when I read this script, I was really tickled by the kind of almost knockabout vaudevillian style comedy scene that opens the play out to us, Ellen. Yes, it's very uh, lighthearted. Everything is in fluorescent pink and yellow. And we have uh, adults playing, uh, wearing children's clothes and playing a series of very ritualised games that they've clearly played again Mm. and again with very strict rules. And they've got Mad Hatter style teapots. And it's there, there are elements of fairy tale and, and hints of echoes of um, Alice in Wonderland and yeah. nursery rhymes. So we we don't know. We're certainly not in gritty realism in the, in the opening all. sections. Way out of realism yeah. into so something who, very who, exaggerated. Yeah, who, yeah. Are those, who are those characters? I mentioned uh, uh, Nick Dunning there. He comes into the scene a little bit further on, but it opens with uh, Anna Healy and Marie Mullen. Marie Mullen playing uh, two characters called Mac and Grass. And they are, they're almost in a kind of a, a codependent relationship, but they're mm. children. They're sort of adult children and they're swapping costumes and they're talking about when is the tooth fairy going to come and all of this kind of thing. They're talking about selling bags of coal, counting it on an abacus, but also using mobile phones. So it's a surreal yeah. mishmash of periods as well as obviously very strange that these are adults in children's costumes. And Nick Dunning comes into that. and, and A little he, later. He, yeah. he continues that kind of general uh, atmosphere that has been set up by the two women. He really does and he's very playful and we're trying to figure out is he related to them? Mm. Who are they? And it and actually that takes a while to unfold. So they're living in they're living in uh, this cavernous basement of a building with two huge very steep staircases one coming straight down the middle of the stage and one along the back and so they're, they they seem to be almost hanging out on the edges of somebody else's life Yeah so is there, is there a topsy-turvy element to the, uh, the the set design here and the stage design in the same way as you've mentioned these surrealistic type of costumes Yeah so the, one set of stairs goes way way up to an upper level and all we see of that upper level is two white children's cots, old-fashioned cots, almost mm. like those old cages that children used to be put mm. in. And we see those lit up and, and that's quite ominous. Yeah, and we and and whatever kind of comic opening is set up by the, the three characters, there's a very sombre procession that follows with it featuring the two characters of Maria and David. It's kind of a repeated motif. Yes, isn't it? it's again very ritualised. They come down the stairs and we realise they're in a different realm and then as as it goes on we realise that they are alive hmm. and the other characters we've just met are ghosts. Yeah. And um, there's another there's another character that comes into the midst of, of all of this, which is the, the title character, Audrey, uh played uh, by uh, Ashley No Sullivan. 
Yes, she is also a ghost. Again, that takes a while to emerge. And she may not be of the same generation as the other yeah. ghosts. That's that's all we've a lot to discover about her. And in the beginning, when we're introduced to her, the whole playful tone changes because the other three, um, Pearly and Mac and Grass, they actually bully her and they abuse her and they put her in the fridge and leave her there overnight. So she's frozen and they, they're punishing her for some obscure reason that we don't really understand. Mm. But in the next scene, she's the dominant one. She's almost like a dominatrix and she's their school teacher and she's controlling them. So they're playing these games of of dominance mm. and submission. And, it, and it, a lot of it actually is unexplained and quite mysterious for, I'd say, the first third of the play. Yeah, I, I, when, I, when I was reading the script, I know that you, you really, you're, you're kind of grappling for to, to work out who exactly everybody is. And there is there are lots of interconnections, which we can't go into because we give, give far too much away if we do that. There are lots of interconnections between the characters. But um, I, I wondered uh, when watching it, even the presence of those children's costumes and surreal costumes would make make things a lot clearer. But is there a, 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 an element of fitting the pieces together and working it out for yourself? Is yes. that, and is that enjoyable? It's very enjoyable. And that and that takes us really through the second third of the play when we start realising the connection between the mm. ghosts and the uh, the young couple and the young couple's parents. So there's a, a further two characters further that come in two later characters on. And, and, and in a very typical Marina Carr way, we get generations. Mm. Uh, we get things that happen that are repeated and that are cyclical and actually are really tragic. And in this case, it is about the, the death of children, of babies, yeah. actually, babies. Yeah, so Cot deaths in yeah. particular. Those are strange, those parents, Maria's estranged parents, played by Ashley McGuckin and, 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 ha- and Howard Teal. There's a scene between. The, the young couple and those parents which it's very strained is it kind of an underlying violence all the time? There, There is a, it becomes really really dark at that point so it, it, it takes us out of the surreal absurdity of the opening and into something much more realistic in that mm. the young couple Maria and her husband David go and visit her parents and, and when we're there we learn a huge amount about the parents marriage and about Maria as a child and we're told things that completely contradict what we've learned earlier from Maria about something very important that has happened in her childhood. It's hard to talk about this, yes. without, so, but it's all tragic. It's deeply black and bleak. And at that point, it becomes, I think, almost overloaded, overloaded with sorrow and suffering. And is that a problem? I think so. I think that the, the tone, when we come out of the playfulness of the ghost realm into this more realistic realm, mm. and the conversation actually becomes quite melodramatic. And it's almost as if, as if the, the the level of unhappiness and pain is it's like it's kind of overdone in mm. this and it doesn't quite sit in this realistic setting so it's almost like the the tone of the play has changed yeah so the sh- the shift from the kind of surreal fairy tale mythic world which we would often associate with the plays of of marina Carr, the shift from that into a more realistic uh, aspect didn't work as well for you it's sort of it's it's, it's neither one thing or the other and mm. we learn we learn about uh the sorrow and the loss of children in the previous generation as mm. well and it's, it's at one point it becomes hard to keep track of quite how many children have died and so we're trying to understand and the characters are trying to understand like when a, ch- a young child dies 
there's always the sense of why did this happen? How did this happen? Who's to blame? What is to blame? And the, they're the questions that come up around this dinner table. And there's there's a lot of... That's the dinner of, table with the parents. With the and, parents yeah. and the young couple. So there's a lot of intergenerational tension and potential blame. And it's almost too much. It, I, so that that intergenerational aspect is is quite important then Very in terms important. of what Marina Carr yes. is saying. Yeah. Um, uh, sorrow in the title. How sorrowful a place you, you're saying? Certainly in the closing section. There's yeah, a lot I mean, of in fact, in fact, uh, sorry to interrupt. The, the character um, Maria's father explains over this this same dinner that there are this is t- Howard Teal, the character, Howard Teal, the actor. There are three different types of sorrow. In fact, we see many, many more types of sorrow. More than three, we see all sorts of grief, pain, depression, postnatal depression, apathy, regret. Uh, you know, it's it's mm. it's full it's full of pain. And I suppose the the driving question is, what is the cause of this? And uh, Maria's mother says, you know, do you think you're in control? She says to the young couple. And she says that somewhere someone else is in charge of all of this. In other words, they're trying to find a reason for all this, the cycle of suffering. So it's almost like it goes from a theatrical absurdity to a sort of philosophical question about the absurdity of existence and whether any of it has any meaning. So that's a very, in a way, classic Marina Carr question. Yeah. Um, what about the performances here? Where, where, where were the standouts for well, you? Well, the standout is Ashling O'Sullivan. She plays she plays Audrey, who is a very mysterious, shape shifting creature who seems to be able to move between the realms of the living and the dead, and that gives her a lot of power. Uh, and she can intervene, shall we say, in life and death. But she's played as a kind of a dominatrix, beautifully dressed, winking at the audience. She's got this absolutely mordant comic timing. Uh, she's she's outstandingly good. Mm. Yeah, very funny, even yeah. though it's extremely dark. And and that balance between the darkness and comedy, which again is a classic Marina Carr uh, trope, I suppose, if I can use that terrible yeah, term. Yeah. But how how does it how does it sit for you? Oh, it it sits really well. I think up, up till about two thirds of the way mm. through. And then there's also there's also something to do. I think the writing needed to be tighter, particularly towards the end. There's a very long closing scene. Um, again, it seems slightly at, at odds with the tone. So the whole thing, and I'm sure it will tighten up during the run as well. The whole thing seems a little bit looser and baggier than some of Marina Carr's more recent, you know, her adaptations of Greek tra- tragedy, which have been very, very mm. uh, coherent and tight. This is uh, it's, this is a new piece, completely new and it's not based on an anything myth. it's yeah. not an adaptation and yet it has um, those mythic but qualities it has, it has those mythic qualities and that question about what is the reason for all this suffering so that is the the question yeah. this is a this is a tragedy of sorts but it's a contemporary tragedy and uh, abby artistic director katrina mclaughlin is directing here how has she done well i think she she and marina Carr seem to have this real affinity and they get that they get that black uh, black humorous tone uh, really really well so um, overall, lots lots y- to enjoy in in some of those moments and in some of the performances. The whole thing, I think, needs to be a little bit more coherent. And do you think that is that might come as it's played in? Yeah, I would say so. I would hope so. Right. Okay. That's Audrey or Sorrow, which is uh, the new play by Marina Carr. It's at the Abbey Theatre. It's there through until the thirtieth of March, and you can find out full details at abbeytheatre.ie. Thanks to Helen Meany for being there for us. 
Last year, Joe Thomas published his acclaimed White Riot, the first of a proposed trilogy of novels set in England during the 1970s and 80s investigating corrupt policing and politics. The sequel to White Riot is called Red Menace and it opens in the mid-1980s. Thatcherism is alive and well. Minor strikes have been kind of put under the the thumb at this stage and protest politics is also very prevalent. Declan Burke has been reading the novel for us and he's with me in studio this evening the, the the main character here who was in the previous novel as well this is at Parker uh, he's called a spy cop this is a this is a reality I think from that period in time Declan uh, very much so it, it wasn't uh, the case at the time but it's it's in kind of the last decade or so this has become a major scandal in, in the UK this idea of spy cops police officers uh, who were uh, who were commissioned to go undercover and mm. spy on British citizens. Uh, now, here in Ireland, we might <laughs> think about that uh, when we're anyone who was paying attention to the troubles mightn't be overly shocked by that. But in the UK, on the mail, this was a huge scandal. The idea that uh, British policemen would be infiltrating organisations, trade unions, activist groups, and so forth. Um, this, you know, it was the very undermining of democracy and, and the right to free speech. And, and isn't so that forth. what they were speaking about this very day across well, the water yes, as well? Yes, indeed. Uh, and as you say, Parker, who's the main character in this one, he wasn't, he was a minor character in the previous novel. He was being run by a character called DC Patrick Noble, who was commissioned by the London Met to infiltrate groups on both sides of the the political divide. So Parker was infiltrating the National Front, for example, but he was also infiltrating um, activist groups who were protesting against uh, police brutality, collusion, um, racial profiling Mm. and so forth. Um, In this novel, the politics of the London Met seems to have changed a little because Parker seems to be only investigating or only asked to infiltrate activist groups who are protesting against uh, the police and the Conservative government. Yes, yeah, so pretty much it's, it's the left wing that are under, under that they're being spied upon Absolutely. In, in this in this particular instance. Another important aspect of this is so, you know, think Thatcher's Britain to get the kind of the social backdrop here. But it opens it opens specifically, I think, doesn't it, on July the thirteenth, nineteen eighty five, at the Live Aid concert. That exact date, Sean. You're absolutely right. And one of the supporting characters, I suppose we would call her, is a woman called uh, Susie Skialfa. She was also in the first novel. She was a freelance photographer in the first novel. Here she has graduated to full time job with the Face magazine. For anyone who remembers the Face. Um, so she's there she's commissioned to go behind the scenes at Live Aid so we meet Bob Geldof and we meet Status Quo and we meet the various luminaries uh, particularly the ones that were on early in the day um, and and I suppose Joe Thomas has chosen Live Aid because it was such an iconic mm. slap bang in the middle of the 1980s it was that great fusion of protest politics to a certain extent and music and celebrity and so forth now the vision we get of Live Aid through the lens of Susie Schialfa and, and the pen of, of Joe Thomas is that not all of the characters who appeared on stage were there for the most altruistic of reasons if I can put it like that and so I think Joe Thomas is using Live Aid as a kind of ironic commentary on the 80s itself the intentions were good it was bright it was shiny it was very glamorous but behind the scenes uh, some of the characters involved uh, you know their their motives were personal rather than political or on mm. behalf of the greater good. Now, and this is where I, I, I guess you've got to get into where the fiction and the fact is, uh, if 
if there is such thing as fact. But however, um, the way Joe Thomas writes this novel, uh, maybe if you explain, for example, when we get a, a breakfast scene or a, 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 sure. a meal so a meal between Margaret Thatcher the, and her husband Dennis. The, the style that, that Joe Thomas employs, he did in the first novel and he's also brought to this one. For readers of David Peace, for example, or James Elroy, they would be familiar with this. This blend of fact and fiction. Um, characters who, for example, in, in this novel, we meet Margaret Thatcher, who was also a character, inverted commas, in the previous novel, or Paul Weller, for example. So there's one scene where we see Margaret Thatcher and Dennis Thatcher, and they're sitting across the breakfast table and they're cracking a boiled egg and they're talking about ABCD. Now, the ABCD happens to be material that was discussed in a cabinet meeting. And that Joe Thomas has researched and has lifted verbatim and put into the mouth of Margaret Thatcher as she speaks uh, to her husband across the breakfast table. So he's taken fact, he's taken historical fact, not just these quotations directly from official documents and so forth, but also the historical truth of what happened. And he's employing his fictional characters to kind of circle around these historical figures uh, and in that way create a blend of fact and fiction. And and the, the point being that the fact is actually it's more than it's more than fact in some way it's a, ver- a verbatim transcription of uh, in the case of Margaret Thatcher something from cabinet meetings oh absolutely in the case of some of the other characters possibly things they said in interviews Paul, well, Paul you might Weller explain is, Paul Weller and the Red Wedge is, is a very good example because Paul Weller was very politically motivated in the 1980s he had left or broken up the jam he had moved into the Style, style Council and, and even with the Style Council he was very politically motivated about what art could achieve um, in in, for its political uh, ends. Uh, Red Wedge was a kind of coalition of like-minded groups who <clears throat> leaned to the left. We had the likes of Burning Spear, we had the likes of Billy Bragg, these kind of... Yeah. And, and the plan was to <clears throat> use music, use popular music to oust, basically, the, the Conservative government and put Labour uh, into power. So a good example of what we were just chatting about. So from that period, Paul Weller would have been interviewed in various magazines and so forth. We might get a chapter in this novel in which Susie Skialfa, who's a mm. fictional character, interviews Paul Weller and he's replying to her questions with actual quotes uh, from, from the period. From Newspapers the, and magazines I mean, of at, the at day. At the end of the novel, there's, it must be about a 25-page uh, index in which Joe Thomas cites the reference Paul Weller said this on such and such a date in such and such a magazine right. in response to such and such a question. It's incredibly scrupulously researched. So he's obviously he's looking at that shiny great is good aspect of the of the 1980s and getting rid of the facade and showing us what was go- going on underneath. How specifically does he do that? Does he have a group uh, are there fictional characters? There's a whole realm or side to the book which is about the development of the Docklands. The Docklands is probably the classic example of, of what you're getting at there because to a certain extent Joel Thomas leans on our memories or our cultural memories of what the 1980s was like. A big pastel colours with shiny progress is good. Everybody's moving forward and everybody's going to be a winner and so forth. Meanwhile, the Docklands was being developed out under the feet of the English people, in fact, the British people. Um, we have a character called John Davies who is a solicitor and he's kind of commissioned to make sure that the, the, the Docklands residents themselves aren't being, you know, evicted that if they're leaving their houses, the houses are being sold, they're getting a fair price and so forth. Somehow he can't seem to get to the bottom of who it is who's buying up all these trenches, uh, tranches of property and so forth. And, and we, there is a shadowy figure who's never referred to by name, but we gradually... St- 
begin to realise that it is the head of News Corp, it's Rupert Murdoch, who is behind this move from of, of mm. English newspaper, of English journalism, I should say, from Fleet Street uh, to Wapping, which leads us into kind of the second important thread, uh, narrative thread, which is, as you referenced, uh, the, 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 the unions, the, the conservative, unions, yeah. the trade unions up north had been pretty much put to bed, unfortunately, at this stage. But the print unions down yeah, south so the London, mining unions had been put to bed, exactly but the print that. unions in the south started Are, to kick up. Yes, exactly. And and it's to me, it's a slight flaw in the novel that Parker, who is infiltrating the activist groups on the political left, he is also commissioned to infiltrate the trade unions as they take on the Conservative yeah. government. I think Joe Thomas could have given the roles to two separate characters, would have been a little bit more plausible, but that's a fairly minor caveat. There is another important aspect to it, again, on the social history side of things, which is the, the infamous Brixton and Tottenham riots and... Uh, how, how does that fit into the story that Thomas is telling? That follows on really from the previous novel because, as I said, we had uh, Parker was kind of commissioned to infiltrate these what we would call left-wing activist groups. So in Hackney, where the novel is largely set, there is a largely black population that are being mm. racially profiled. They're being targeted. They, I mean, there is racial murder happening by uh, the, the police and so forth. The um, here Parker goes undercover in Wandsworth. He he finds himself a girl, a girlfriend, and manages to inveigle his way into the estate and so forth. So he is literally on hand when he sees Wandsworth go up in flames. When these riots kick off, and he is giving first-hand report back to his boss up up the mm. the chain of command. Uh, and and you can imagine how far and how effective those reports uh, are. I suppose this is a constant um, balance uh, in in crime fiction, uh, Declan. That that the balance between the page turning, solving of a crime or solving of a mystery or trying to get to the bottom of who's behind all this buying up of properties or whatever the particular thing is, the balance between that and some kind of social commentary, whether that is contemporary or in this case back in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. It strikes me that the Joe Thomas book seems to be heavier on the the social and political commentary side of thing things than the than the crime fiction side of things. I would agree with that, except to say that at this stage, and I hate saying this because I'm a man of a certain vintage, to realise that the 1980s is now a historical era, Sean, is a blow to my uh, to my ego. So a lot of the material that you're describing as, as we'll say, social issues, for example, the development of the Docklands, who was responsible, why were the British people, uh, the taxpayer cheated I was kind of aware of these events mm. at the time, but as the stories unfold in the novel, it does unfold as if it was a mystery being. Now, unless you're completely plugged into that historical era and you know what happened in Brixton and why and so forth, you know what happened in Wapping and why and so it is going to unfold like a mystery novel because these are... yeah situations that need to be investigated and the truth has to come out as in a classic novel but you're correct Joe Thomas is a writer who's very much has the emphasis here on social justice on on the importance of freedom of speech the all the good things that we would associate with the with the kind of left wing uh, crime novel so is it then is it a good social social history read is it a good 
page turner read or is it both? I would say it's both and, and I'm a bit of a sucker for the style that Joe Thomas uh, employs here again I refer back to the likes of David Peace and James Elroy kind of real terse telegraphic kind of very muscular prose he, he he really gets to the meat of the situation with virtually every sentence that to me is a page turning novel he's a lovely stylist um, I I I'm raving about this a wee bit, but I do think it's an early contender uh, for crime fiction. If there's a better crime novel this year, Sean, it'll be a very, very good book. And you'll be very happy to read I a, a better book will. than this. And this is the second of a trilogy. Second, the third is True Blue, and I presume that's due next year. Right, OK. So that is Declan Burke speaking to us about Red Menace from by Joe Thomas, which is published by Arcadia Books. Friday evening, time for a look at album releases for fans of two of Manchester's biggest bands, The Stone Roses and Oasis. This week is a special one with the release of an album from Oasis frontman Liam Gallagher and Stone Roses guitarist John Squire. Gallagher, of course, grew up listening to The Stone Roses and has always cited them as a major influence. So is this self-titled collaboration between the two a marriage made in Mancunian musical heaven? Another Manchester band, Everything Everything, return with their seventh studio album. This is called Mountainhead. Uh, they created lyrics with ChatGBT on their last album. This time they're inspired by the desolation of late-stage capitalism, aren't we all? And Faye Webster releases her fifth album, Underdressed at the Symphony. The Atlanta singer-songwriter has blown up via TikTok lately. We'll play two Dublin shows in May at Vicker Street and the Button Factory. Let's start with Liam Gallagher and John Squire. This is the opening track, Raise Your Hands. Raise your hands. Raise your hands. And yes, you can see that happening in the stadium and you can see everybody singing yeah. along, particularly in Manchester, uh, I would have thought. Aoife Barry and Cian Sullivan, did I say, are our reviewers on this uh, Friday evening. Um, Mine and John's new album is out today. It's crucial, it's spiritual, it's celestial, it's majestical, it's biblical. Turn it up and enjoy. Liam Gallagher there kind of being very modest and understated in his in his assessment of the album. Are you with him on this, Aoife? Typical Gallagher brothers. They just don't know really how to talk themselves up. <laughs> they just don't know how to do it. Um, you know, I'm with him on some of those things. Some of those things. It's yeah, out today. You're it's, it's out today. That. The album's out. It exists. It um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, this album isn't celestial or biblical. Um, maybe it's kind of got a biblical story of two warring men who are, you know, warring with their bandmates coming together to make a record. Mm. Um, but just like you heard from that great opening track Raise Your Hands um, it's exactly what you'd expect if you were like so let me tell you about an album with John Squire and Liam Gallagher pairing up together it's exactly what it says on the tin some of the songs are great like that song some mm. of the songs aren't so great um, they're a little bit derivative um, some of them really wear their um, influences on their sleeve particularly I think if Jimi Hendrix is uh, yeah. just listening down he's probably writing you know some sort of a, a legal letter to try and get them to stop <laughs> off his music um, because they have taken a lot from um, yeah. his guitar sounds on, on tracks yeah. like Love You Forever which sounds exactly like Hendrix. Yeah and, and it has to be said obviously the, the two bands I think Kane 
what we just heard in Raise Your Hands, I that was full on Oasis yeah. stroke late Beatles type of yeah, yeah. type of feel to it. Whereas there are lots of other tracks where it's it's full on Stone Roses. Yeah, definitely. Like well, something like I'm a Wheel definitely brings Gallagher into a more bluesy space. It's kind of mm. twelve yeah. bar blues in that. And even though like you can hear the clashing of the two bands, it's all written and all music and lyrics are written by John Squire. So Liam just provides the vocals on this. So it, even that minimal input does kind of merge the two of them. Together. And what what does it do to his vocal I mean it's a, it's such a recognisable sound yeah. that even once he's no matter what he's singing it's a very recognisable Liam Gallagher sound but there's a slight shift when that blues that more bluesy feel is in underneath it I think so I think it really complements his like trademark rasp as well and there's mm. some like some of these songs have really sunshine chords they're really happy and exuberant and I think you kind of see him break out of his like there's always a tension in his music between you know like I've done wrong but also get out of my way and I think it's fun for <laughs> yeah. him to just let loose and just have some fun on these tracks yeah um, sorry if you were going to so say I was going to agree I feel like he sounds like he's in really good form like mm. he's really happy to be collaborating with John Squire where he's always arguing with Noel Gallagher you know and <laughs> so together when they're on stage they, when they were on stage they would always be at each other but it's nice to see him with somebody who he actually wants to be in the room with and they, 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 they're both kind of prepared to laugh at themselves there's a track called Make It Up As You Go As You Go Along which kind yeah, of covers is, a lot here, here's, this is how we write songs and I mean they kind of yeah. are laughing at themselves and there's a bit of laughing at themselves I think going on here too in You're Not The Only One I don't know whose piano riff this is but there's a, an amazing piano riff great. and then an amazing guitar riff at the beginning but you've heard them before somewhere <laughs> that's for sure I know, I know. I finally worked. It's Led Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time. Shocker. It's straight out. It's straight rock and roll from from um, from uh, from Led Zeppelin from Zeppelin Four, isn't it? Yeah. Um, however, we were also saying as we were listening to that, Eva, that is um, you're not the only one from Liam Gallagher and John Squire and their new self-titled album. The drumming on that track in particular is brilliant as well. So good. And the drummer on the record is a guy called Joey Warunker. Hard name to say. Um, he's played at Beck and R.E.M. So if you've ever been reading the liner notes to, um, to any of those acts albums, you'll always spot his name. Whenever Joey's name pops up anywhere, you're guaranteed something sounds good. Um, he's also done a lot of soundtracks like About a Boy. So they've got a really good, um, you know, kind of backing band with them and a guy called Greg Kirsten as well, who's a producer, but yeah. also plays bass. Yeah. And he's worked with like Adele and Sia and people, a lot of pop people. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting band Makes they sense. have around there. Yeah. And Kian, you were saying as we were listening, it's so festival ready. Absolutely. Yeah. You can hear, like you can hear this, it's anthem ready. You want, you can imagine a field full of people holding their beer in their mouth while they clap along to these tracks <laughs> and even if it's raining in Glastonbury even if it's raining because I mean <laughs> lyrically there's not a lot on this this is just vibes all the way and the vibes are really good and it's kind of critic proof in a way because they aim for something they're aiming for that Britpop nostalgia and they absolutely hit it out of the park alright okay well, so you, you enjoyed it but it kind of there's nothing it's not earth shattering no, I mean, like, I heard them in an interview with Zane Lowe and they asked, Zane asked them about Just Another Rainbow, what was the inspiration there? And John Squire said, well, I live on a hill, I see a lot of rainbows. So <laughs> that's the lyrical depth you're getting. I, so. I admire how honest well, they that's are. that's great, yeah. <laughs> They'll be talking about all the stuff, you know, yeah. concepts people don't understand. Absolutely. Make it like up rainbows. as you go along. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Stars from you, Kim. Uh, I'm going to give it three because it sounds really, really good. There's just, I guess, it lacks a little bit of substance to take it further. All right, three. And what are you saying, Aoife? Yeah, three for me too. It's really enjoyable. I mean, mm. it doesn't 
don't always hit the marks, but it's it's way better than in a way you'd expect it to be, and yeah. that's great. Yeah, okay. throw it on summer day. Liam Gallagher and John Squire coming to a festival near, near you at some time over the summer. And I think and there's more albums to come. They seem to suggest yeah. there's at least another album, if not a yeah, lot. They're both having fun, so, Absolutely. so why not? Yeah. Right, let us move on then to our second album. And this is the seventh album from Everything Everything, which is intended to be a critique of late stage capitalism. And a general questioning of what our culture is developing into. I'm exhausted. The opposite to the album we just heard. Yeah. It's not it's not it's not light on substance, this particular one. Give us the concept here. because uh, the the album cover has uh, the body of a man with a mountain in, yeah. in, in an inverted mountain on mm. his um, it could be a woman or right, yeah. on the person's on head on the person's head yes yeah, so apparently this is basically kind of a like a two thirds of it is slightly concept album so it's about a society which is consumed with the building of a giant mountain hence the mountain on the cover but the, to get the mountain built people have to dig a deep hole and live in it to build this mountain but at the bottom of the pit that they live in is a giant golden snake and they have to basically escape this this snake so it's basically representing this sort of alternate society idea um, where you have the elite who are obviously and presuming not living at the bottom mm. of the pit with the golden yeah. snake and then you have the people who have to try and kind of dig their way out so it is a metaphor for like you were saying there late stage capitalism and sure aren't we all feeling the pinch of late stage <laughs> capitalism these days whether we live on a mountain or in a pit <laughs> yeah I'm, well I think most of us are in the pit yeah, <laughs> looking at the honest. stars also, looking at the stars the snake <laughs> is called Creta Hornus as well it gets name has its own lore yeah there's, a, there's Creta Hornus the snake Creta Hornus the snake yeah all right, I'm going off to. I feel like I'll be researching horror. Every day. Yeah. Try to harness this name. Let's have a listen to a track called "Are You Happy." There we go. Are you happy? And you were actually saying to us a bit further into the, the track, actually. Credit Hornus gets a shout out. Credit yeah. Hornus gets, gets, <laughs> gets a mention, the, the snake from everything, everything. Um, I, I was asking as we were listening to that, when you hear the songs in isolation, they all kind of, they all pulled me in. Mm. But there are 14 of them and it is 54 minutes and 53 seconds long. The album. Yeah, I definitely yeah. think this loses some steam as it as it goes on. I definitely think the first six songs I think are all mm. killer, no filler. I think Jonathan Higgs has a really great mastery of melody. I think he knows how to craft a melodic hook and he weaves in and out of three or four of them per song in really, really expert fashion. There's a kind of I think it's maybe T V dog seven tracks in, it kinda of gets a bit darker or something. And I yeah, think, that song yeah. stuck out to me too in not a great yeah. way. Yeah, I think, kind of the, the album shifts into something else. And it kind of I think the songs go into that pit where they're all the workers are and they kinda of like they're talking about what it's like to work on the pit. It kinda of gets a bit lost, tangled mm. up in its own ideas, I think. Um so I think that is possibly one downside is that I guess the repeatability of the tracks in the second half do yeah. It dwindle. All right. Uh, well, I, I've chosen a second track from the, from the first part of the album as well because it's nearly a double album. There's a wee touch yeah. of feel of that off it. Mm. Let's have a listen to a track called Cold Reactor. I love the vocals at the top of this. So we built the mountain by digging out on my Oh 
listened to that track today too, and I thought, I kind of thought it's kind of a little, little bit of a novelty <laughs> track as well. There's, yeah. a, there's that feeling of it because despite the the fact that everything everything I was thinking about, you know, are singing about quite serious social uh, themes here, mm. it's it's high end pop. Certainly in the first part, it's kind yeah. of quite synthy pop. It really is, and even that vocal bit there that we were mm. just at the very end is like a chromatic kind of scale that he's singing as well. So it's like it's, it's which is which are always really super catchy on, on the ear. So uh, what we what I really liked about about a lot of the really great songs on this record was they surprised me with how upbeat and poppy yeah. and lovely they were. Because I really thought with everything, everything, I thought, oh no, they're going to be sounding exactly like they were back in two thousand and seven. And I was lumping them in with a lot of the bands of that kind of electro kind of you know alternative alt pop kind of stuff yeah. that was going on in in Britain but they managed to bring their sound with them add some interesting dynamics onto it and create some really solid tracks which I was really surprised in, in a positive way um, by and stars from you on that Eva I'd actually give it a four which might be overly generous but I actually really yeah. enjoyed it yeah and what you say, well, I've chosen two tracks from the first yeah. part so but maybe that's why because I was even further down and this is a good thing towards the end of the playlist or the, the track listing the, the, I was hearing stuff that sounds like elbow in there which is obviously a very pleasant sound to listen yeah. to but maybe just as because there were so many I'd, I'd listened to too many songs I know and, and I think because they're trying to get that dystopian world across in the sonics I think sometimes I guess the sonics can fatigue by mm. the end like there is some slight changes in sounds but they kind of stay in that same sort of palette so. Alright stars from UK I also gave it a 4 I think the the really yeah. solid first half kind of outweighs the second the problems yeah. of the, of the yeah, 100%. overstaying it's welcome yes <laughs> Alright a double 4 then for uh, Mountainhead and everything everything let's move on to our final album this evening Underdressed at the Symphony Atlanta singer-songwriter Faye Webster fifth studio album here follow-up to 2021's acclaimed I Know I'm Funny Ha Ha let's have a listen to a track called But Not Kiss Kind of surprising little bit in the midst of it. That's Faye Webster and But Not Kiss from her album Underdressed at the Symphony. I, I I was listening to this today and I just put down Pixie Hipster. Oh no, that's, poor that's Faye. All, like, that's all I could hear for, for large sections of it. But that may be because I was coming out of um, I was coming out of everything, everything at the time. <laughs> Thinking about Pixies. J- just give us a bit of her family background, her family music background, Faye Webster, um, Eva. Yeah, she's really interesting. Her, her granddad was a bluegrass guitarist. Her mother was also a guitarist and fiddle player. And she started playing music really young herself. She brought out her first record when she was 16. She self-released it. That was back in 2013, if you want to feel really old. Um, <laughs> so she's brought out, four, this is her fifth record. So, you know, she's consistently been wow. releasing records. She's mm. like, what, 25, 26 now? Mm. Um yeah. And this, what what was interesting about this record, her sound hasn't radically changed much over the last three records, but she does evolve with each one. And this one, the vocals are actually a lot more mumbly, which I think is maybe leaning yeah. into that pixie sound you're thinking of, where there is that current vocal style that she slightly leans into. She's a bit more clear when she's singing on the other records. But this is a breakup record and it's more emotional. Even though she doesn't give you a huge amount of the lyrics, there is that sense that she's kind of protecting herself a little bit, maybe by singing that way. Yeah, um, but they've, they were the old opening track which is called Thinking About You and is uh, I think six minutes or so long Yeah, and the, the lyric is Thinking About You 
over thinking and over about again. You, thinking about you and it goes on. <laughs> yeah, so if you're the ex, ex-partner, you're probably like, what? Um, but what I thought was interesting was a lot of her songs on this record and other ones, it's a lot about repetition. So mm. she repeats the same sections over and over again. And at one point I thought, oh, is, is this mm. digital album skipping? Which isn't a thing, but it actually really works. I realise it's the key to her sound yeah. being so good. And there's another track uh, further down on the track listing, Kane, called uh, eBay Purchase History. So she's very, very contemporary in, in the things that she's writing about the, the hooks uh, her way into writing about yeah definitely and this one kind of yeah. sees her kind of scroll back through her history with her ex and go through the things that they bought together on eBay and as she kind of scrolls through the list there's these ping notifications throughout the track that are kind of like a memory for each time she sees something new there's a memory pinged from the ex which is like a real clever way for her to tie mm. the emotion in musically rather than through the the lyrics which are kind of scant on this yeah well let's have a listen to eBay purchase history Another one of those little sad things of, of, of eBay purchase memory. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's that's Faye Webster and Underdressed of the Symphony. What were you saying? I was Ken? just going to say what what I really appreciate about the record is that she's not she's very comfortable in being a bit weird. You know, like mm. she's an eccentric person. I get she loves Pokemon. She's custom, she's designed her own yo-yo, and there's things like that throughout the album Ixie that hipster. I kind of <laughs> like even in the title track. The first time she names the album, the song just stops into this orchestral crescendo and then just continues. Like, there's some really fun quirkiness on this. Yeah, and musically, you would have to say it's very pleasant. It's so lovely. Yeah, I think like that kind of uh, acoustic guitar we heard in the first song reminds me of Elliot Smith. So, anybody who likes the kind of low key singer songwriter vibe will like that. But I think if you're really into alternative kind of indie Americana bands like Wilco, Nils Nils Klein, the guitarist from Wilco, actually plays on a track on this record. He loves me. Yeah, um, that kind of vibe is just really chill, really lovely, really accomplished. Like musically, mm-hmm. it sounds so nice. Um, and even though it's a short album, there maybe aren't loads of ideas, but the ideas that are there are brilliant and they're repeated over and over. So you yes, they are get repeated. Their sense. I, I was telling you that. that one of the younger members of the family was listening with me today and then on the track In a Lifetime, which a bit like I'm thinking about you, has the words In a Lifetime repeated a lot. Yeah. He just kept saying, In a Lifetime what? <laughs> in a Lifetime what? <laughs> You need to listen to Talking Heads, you yeah. know, once in a lifetime. Get the whole shebang on Yeah, that. get the whole the whole shooting gallery over there. But um, musically, I think we all agree there's a lot to, to be offered here. And maybe there's a point in those repeated lyrics. That's precisely the point mm-hmm. without being yeah, too cynical exactly. about it. Um, what are you saying overall about this um, underdressed at the symphony from Faye Webster, Kane? Uh, if you'd allow me a half, I'll give it four and a half. I, I will allow you. I'll, I will allow you the half. In, Thank you very indeed. much. What's missing? Uh, <laughs> what's the half that's missing so although I think this is a lot more consistent and I think there's almost a trance-like state that she takes you in in this album mm. that you know can just sweep you up in it I think it misses a high like one of those tracks you play from Everything Everything that just ha- is like candy for the ears yeah. I don't think there's any of that on this. yeah it's it's quite downbeat yeah. I suppose breakup album they mm. kind of generally yeah. are until the new person comes along exactly. and happy times <laughs> again <laughs> maybe that'll be the next yeah. album so four and a half from Kane what are you saying Aoife I would say four and I'd say it's no surprise that why she's beloved of the TikTok uh, younger people on TikTok because she really 
really speaks to you I think as a young person but I'm not a young person she really appeals to me as an oldie as well um, really great I can't wait to, wait to hear about the many more albums I'm sure she has to come alright so what did you say stars wise four four, 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 four and yeah, four, four and a half there for Faye Webster and Andre at the Symphony Mountainhead Everything Everything and Liam Gallagher and John Squire's self-titled album Cain Sullivan and Aoife Barry are two reviewers on this Friday evening and that 